In both of the last two episodes, we've talked about the quietness of the voice of God, how surprisingly gentle God is in dealing with both his enemies and his friends. And in this teaching that I have to share with you today, I present a few ideas on how to listen to quietness, how to hear and interpret the voice of God in our lives. I am not among those Christians who think that God often speaks with audible voice to us. I don't think that happens very often. And I'm suspicious when I hear stories of it happening, I have to admit. But I do recognize that God has occasionally spoken to the human race in audible ways. And I've known people who have felt that they heard God's voice certainly consciously and perhaps even audibly in their lives. And when it did happen, it was appropriate and it was something that didn't knock them over and it was quiet and it felt righteous and restrained and kind and appropriate. It was intelligible But most of the people that I know who hear the voice of God don't hear him so much as an audible voice, but as a a manager of their experiences who brings thoughts to their mind and observations to their eyes that they can use to see something that they hadn't seen before. God is the God of aha moments. He's the God of inspiration the God of insight and the God of deep thought and of clarity of vision and of deep conviction, mature reflection. Those are things that God sponsors, leads, teaches, imparts to the human spirit that is devoted and pure in its efforts to understand his will and to rid themselves of self-will and pride. So, this teaching is called Listening to the Voice of God, and I hope you enjoy it. I've been thinking about this topic for quite a while. I actually gave a uh, talk on this topic in uh, Seattle when I was there a couple months ago. The topic is listening to God. I was thinking about how um, I've struggled to learn to detect the voice of God in my own life, and uh, I was st- so I studied how God spoke to other people down in the Bible and what we can learn from those lessons. I don't want to spend all the time that I have just going through those stories. I want to try to um, just hit some high points from your memory and then go on to other things. Um, the first account that I was thinking of is in 1 Samuel, the third chapter, and uh, verses 1 through 18. And that's the story, of course, where Samuel was a boy and was in the service of Eli. And as a servant of Eli, there were two things about it that are interesting. One is that 
that the word of God itself was rare, it says in that account. God was not speaking uh, much to people. And it also says in that account that Samuel himself was inexperienced. It says he was he did not know, um, he had no experience at all in listening to the voice of God. So God actually spoke to him audibly and and he heard it, but Levi didn't. This is about Levi. <laughs> and uh, he, so Samuel would go to Levi and say, I'm here, what do you want me to do? And Levi said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Eli, I'm sorry. I, what, I did a, tw a twist in my head. It was Eli, not Levi. And Eli said, um, uh, go back to bed. So, you know, Samuel comes, goes back to bed, and then God calls him again and wakes him up. And at the third or fourth time, Eli finally figured out what was happening. And he said, the next time that happens, this is God talking to you. The next time this happens, just say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And then the very first time God spoke to, to Samuel, he gave him this very scathing denunciation of his boss. That's really shocker. And, and so Samuel didn't know what to do. It was like reading the riot act to, to Eli, this old man who he served. And, and, what, and so what was really interesting was Eli perceived that Samuel was reticent to really speak up about what God had said. And he said, now you listen. You tell me everything that God told you and don't leave anything out. And that's what he did. And, and Eli's response was typical of what you would expect from a man of God, even a man of God who had made mistakes. And that was, that is God. That is, what it, whatever he wants to do is what needs to happen. You know, basically... It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good, I think as it says in the King James. So what I got from that account is that the Lord, the word of God at times is rare, and it certainly has been rare in our day. Uh, it, it's, it takes experience to hear the voice of God in your life. Samuel um, later was much more adept at probably hearing the word of God than he was as a boy. And then the third point that I got from that account is that when we hear the word of God, we not only need to obey it ourselves, but we also need to transmit it, uh, both the good and the bad, to others. We need to tell people the whole thing and not, you know, if it's God's word, it needs to be transmitted and not, we need not to, out of thinking that we're being kind or thinking that we're being diplomatic, not water it down. You know, say the word of God faithfully if it's been given to us. And of course, most of the word of God is given to us in the scriptures. And so we need to try to transmit the scriptures with kindness and tact, but we need to at times present what the scriptures say as forcefully as they say it. Okay, the next account I was thinking of is Moses, and that's in Exodus 3, 1 through 12. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. Now here again, we have a person who was inexperienced in discerning the word of the Lord. And uh, 
But unlike Samuel, he's not a little boy. He's an old man. He's already 80 years old at this point. And uh, when, God, when Moses saw the bush, you know, he was intrigued by the sight, and he came close, and that's when God spoke to him and said, okay, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This recognize that what's happening to you is special and different and is is something that is going to um, make it's going to demand a response from you you need to be holy here you need to be focused on 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 being set apart and uh, to, to be able to serve God then you, you read the conversation that took place, and what's interesting to me in the conversation was that Moses just kept giving objection after objection. Well, I'm, you know, how will they know that you spoke to me? How will they know that I, it's not just me? The Egyptians, um, you know, what, what will they do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so God had all the answer is ready. You know, he said, well, I thought about that. I'll give you strength. I'll, I'll be words to you, etc. I, I will give you power. And he did the voice of those, those signs. He gave him those signs that would show his authority and so forth. And um, finally, Moses, after hearing all of that, said, you know, I think you have the wrong person. We'll get somebody else. And that's when God got mad. And but even then, God didn't say, okay, fine, I'll find somebody else. He, he still wanted Moses, and he was committed to Moses. And uh, he said, well, I'll send you Aaron to be your, to be your uh, spokesperson, which was a mixed blessing at best. Anyway, I think that what I get from that account is that God chooses us before we hear him. This is what Paul said, he was chosen from the womb. This is certainly true of Jesus. Really, all of uh, us, um, it says in Ephesians, God foreknew. And so he, he provides for us before we come to him. And another thing I get from it is that God wants us to recognize that he is providing the resources to do the service. And that he knows that our weaknesses, and already has the wherewithal to do what needs to be done through us, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our difficulties. And so what we really need to do, the only thing that we need to do, is to overcome our doubts about ourselves and, and look away from self, as it says somewhere, uh, and look instead at God and his resources. And that's why we're told in Hebrews, the, te the 10th chapter, you know, that we should, whenever there's a time of need, we should boldly go to the throne of grace and, and, and trust God to meet our needs and to equip us to do what we need to do. Now here's another uh, uh, interesting story, the First Kings 13 story. And you probably remember this one too. This is the one where there was an old... Uh, prophet in Bethel, and the story begins with this prophet from Judah who is not named, who delivers a prophecy to Jeroboam, a very important scriptural prophecy that was fulfilled 340 years later. It was about the coming of Josiah the king, but uh, this prophecy 
was delivered by this man of God from Judah, and um, the word of the Lord who came to him also told him to go home a different way and to not eat or drink on the way home. And um, this prophet uh, went and uh, did what he was supposed to do. He, One thing that I really liked about him was that he delivered a judgment message to Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was not repentant. Jeroboam put out his hand and pointed at him and said, seize him. You know, like, capture this guy. He is challenging my authority. And God froze his arm. And the prophet from Judah didn't just laugh at that and, you know, walk away and say, you know, there you go. That, that ought to teach you a lesson. He immediately became an intercessor on behalf of Jeroboam. When Jeroboam, you know, softened his tone and said, please would you entreat God to, you know, unparalyze my hand, the, the prophet entreated God and asked God for mercy on behalf of Jeroboam. Now, I think that's a beautiful example of how a servant of the Lord needs to be a merciful person. He, this was a really good guy. Well, anyway, on his way home, uh, Jeroboam offers to have him eat with him, and he said, no, God told me no. I, I, I'm, I'm going straight home a different way and not eating with you. And uh, but then this old prophet comes along and overtakes him, resting under an oak tree, and says, hey, come home with me. I, you need to eat and drink. And he said, no, no, the word of the Lord told me not to. And he said, well, an angel, I'm a prophet too, and an angel told me that you should. And so he did, and then God judged him for that. And that's a really, that is a really challenging story. Here's what I get out of this story. First of all, we do need to, the obvious lesson is, of uh, course, that we do need to do, obey everything that the Word of God tells us. When we distinguish something in our lives as the voice of God speaking to us, we need to obey it, no matter what anybody says, even if it's somebody who is also a prophet, another brother or whatever. Even if somebody tells us that, you know, we should soften or change our direction, we need, if we are certain that it's the word of the Lord speaking to us, we need to obey our conscience, not what uh, this other person says. But I don't think that we should get from this that God is so very harsh. I think that there's another lesson here that's very useful to us, especially in the context of the, the many disagreements that exist within the Bible student movement. Um, I think that what this story shows is that God works with flawed people. And all of the Lord's people, in, in reality, are like these two prophets. They are people who um, are at times somewhat disobedient, and they are at times um, somewhat mistaken about what they say the Word of God is. And God uses those little disobediences and those little misunderstandings 
about what his word and what his will is to expose the weaknesses in each other. I think that's the lesson from that's the lesson I get from this story. That God when he's he speaks to each of us. He spoke to and through the old prophet. He spoke to and through the young prophet from Judah. Both of them were his his men. Both of them, when they died, died in, um, in and were buried together in the same grave. Their bones were mingled in death. And that tells me that, that they loved each other and they were companions of each other. But... As they lived their lives, what happened was that each of them became a, a source of stumbling to the other. And I believe that that's what happens in the brotherhood. That the, the brotherhood, like it or not, as ugly as it seems, as, as unidealistic as it seems, the brotherhood is there to not just give us good things, but also give us misinformation that we have to learn to test and yet remain loyal to the person in spite of the fact that what they said doesn't pass the test of righteousness or truth. We're going to be surrounded by people who, who believe error, and we, we shouldn't like say, well, I'm just only going to be with people who believe the truth. You know, I think we need to recognize that there are, there are people who God loves and is working with who are at times going to say things to us that, if we test it, we will find that it's not true. And we still need to be loyal and loving to them and, and recognize that we are there for them to test them and they are there to test us. That's what I get from it. I, I recognize it's controversial, but I, in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, you know, there's a scripture that should humble all of us. It says, um, he that thinks he knows anything doesn't know anything as he ought to know. And I think that is true. And that's why we need to recognize the wisdom of God in, in bringing, in, in, in the way he has chosen to bring the body together and to educate the body, which is through imperfect, flawed people that we're surrounded by. Well, now there's a very interesting story in Numbers 22 through 24. That's the story of Balaam. Now, here's a man who was quite famous as a, as a spokesman for God and as one who got the word of God through divination. So famous that, um, that Balak, the leader of the... Um, uh, the Moabites, was, was willing to go all the way to what's now Iraq, to the land of Abraham, to, to bring this guy and, and curse Israel. He saw Israel coming and he, he wanted, he knew that the armies weren't stopping him and so he thought maybe some sort of spiritual power might be able to stop him. So he, he hires, he tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel. What's really interesting when you read that story to me um, is the way in which um, Balaam uh, re reveals that his conscience was, Im was impaired. His conscience was damaged. 
but you can see it in the reading between the lines. For example, uh, if you look closely uh, at the account, um, God appeared to Balaam and said, don't go with these guys and don't curse Israel because they are blessed. Well, that was pretty clear. But when Balak's messengers came to Balaam, Balaam didn't say, I am not coming. God is blessed. Find somebody else because I'm not. You know, God told me that Israel is blessed, which is the way the prophet of Judah spoke about what the word of the Lord had told him. You know, very assertive, very direct. Balaam didn't say that. He said, God won't let me. Which is like saying, I'd like to come. Yeah, I really, if I could, I really would. But, you know, God has said, you, I can't, and so I can't, you know. So they said, well, ask God, you know, because we can pay a big price and blah, 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 you know. And he said, well, okay, I'll ask him again. So he asked God again. And God said, okay, go with him. But then the next verse says that when he actually went with him, it says it says in the Tanakh, the way that it renders it is, God was incensed that he did that. So God wasn't going to um, make Balaam do something that he didn't want to do. But he was mad at the choice Balaam made. And he actually sent an angel to try to kill Balaam all in the way. And that's the story, you know, of, the, of Balaam's ass. And, and that's a, a, it's a humorous and, and inter interesting story. When Balaam finally realizes that God is really upset with him for what he, the course that, of life that he set out upon, he asks God what he should do. And at this point, God doesn't say, okay, turn back. You never should have come here. He said, okay, go forward. But... Only do precisely what I tell you to do. Be very careful to be obedient to me. And I find that that, what I get from that is that we are often in our lives, and we, we often make choices that have a bit of rebellion behind them. It might be the choice of career, or the choice of mate, or the choice of house, or the choice of, of uh, uh, lifestyle that we have made, but we make choices sometimes in our life, or companions, friends that we make, we make choices that sometimes are not what God would have wanted us to make, and that we somehow partially knew better than to do. And yet, when we make those choices, I believe that when we finally see through experience the error of our way, God doesn't say normally, you're going to have to undo 20 years of your life here and, and completely change and go back to square one and start over. No. Now that you see the error of your way and you know that you've made a mistake, you're going to have to co carry on with what you started to do, but you're going to now have to do it with much more consciousness of my direction than you had before. And that's basically what the challenge that Balaam was given. Well, then it goes on and it talks about how Balaam, you know, 
did the sacrifices with Balak, and then he went and got, um, you know, by himself to try to to get the word of the of the Lord on the matter, and he gave the prophecy faithfully that God gave him. The third time he did that, um, it says that it, he he finally realized. This is, I think, in the, tw- the the last chapter of the account, maybe the twenty third or fourth chapter. It says that he 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 really started seeing now what God how, how it pleased the Lord. And there's a beautiful passage. Yes, and it's twenty four verse one. And when Balaam was saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. This is Finally, God permeated Balaam's heart. And he really became in tune with the Spirit of God at that point. For a while, his obedience was half-hearted, perhaps. But when he finally continued in his obedient pathway, and he really started discovering and feeling what God had been telling him, he became fully on board with what God was doing in his heart. And it, it, it finally... It finally reached deep within him and, and, and made him, it changed him. And it said, this is the man whose eyes are open. He speaks of himself as the man whose eyes are now open, in verse uh, 3. And, and then he says in verse 4, this is, the, this is the man who heard the word of the Lord. He's finally heard the word of the Lord, and he, now he speaks it. And, uh, and it's the most beautiful, real, I think, the most beautiful blessing of Israel um, and prophecy in the Old Testament. It's just beautiful. And it, it even emphasizes or echoes the Abrahamic promise in verse uh, 9 when it says, Blessed is he that blesses thee, and cursed is he that curses thee. That, that's just an echo of what God told Abraham. Well, of course, there's a postscript to this story. Balaam um, did not remain faithful, and... Um, he got one parting shot in, apparently. We learn about that in the book of Revelation uh, from the words of Jesus in his messages to the church, where he says that Balaam um, stumbled the nation of uh, Moab into sin. No, he stumbled the nation of Israel into sin. The way he, what he apparently did is he, 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 as he was leaving, he told the Moabites, that there was no curse for Israel, but they could bring a curse upon Israel if they got, if they tempted Israel into into sexual immorality and, and these, these perversions of religion that they engaged in with their uh, harlotry and uh, worship of the god Chemosh. Well, that's, that's what stumbled Israel, and that's what stumbled Balaam. He still apparently went back, and Jude talks about it, or, or Peter talks about it in Second Peter. Uh, there was an idolatrous element that Balaam never finally was able to shake. But that doesn't need to be our end. 
we can be sometimes like Balaam, and we can we don't have to backslide once we finally get it right in our lives and and focus on doing God's will in our lives, even in a situation that wasn't ideal from a spiritual perspective. Let's think about, by the way, the Re Revelation 2.14 is that reference. And there's also an account of, of the idolatry in Numbers 25, the very next chapter. Um, think about Jonah now. Jonah... Here, the, there is no question what God's word was to Jonah. It was very simple. It was, um, go to Nineveh, and I will tell you what to say when you get there. What did Jonah do? He went the opposite direction. He went to Tarshish. So there, it's just a simple issue of obedience. And so the question is, are we going to, when, 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 when God tells us something, are we going to obey or not? And um, in Jonah's case, it's a good thing for all of us that Jonah disobeyed because the thing that God brought about as a result of Jonah's disobedience was the thing that became a sign of Jesus' resurrection. You know, Jonah was swallowed up by the whale um, he spent three days there, and then he was spit out onto the ground alive, like a resurrection. And the funny thing is, according to um, A.O. Hudson, who wrote about this at length in one of the uh, Bible Study Monthly magazines, he said that that Jonah. Uh, there are records from you know Assyrian history of a, t a famous prophet who who came out of a fish and. Um, as a result of his being spit out of this fish, he became so famous that he he uh, people worshipped him as a god. Well, this is Jonah. Jonah came out of the fish, and it was a, a result of his disobedience that he he had this incredible opportunity to um, uh, preach to the Ninevites, and they would actually listen to him. But then there's another thing that comes out of this story, and that's the fact that Jonah wasn't at peace with God's mercy. Jonah liked the feeling of being a prophet who had a prophet of doom to deliver, a prophecy of doom to deliver. He liked, he seemed to like that, and it, and he was unhappy when God relented re, uh, and when the, the Ninevites uh, repented and showed remorse and, and a, willing, a willingness to change their ways, God said, okay, we won't bring this, this doom to them. And that made Mo Jonah mad. So, what I get from that is that, well, first of all, the obvious one again, to do God's will, we need um, we need to be willing to do it. You know, we have to be willing to obey. It, there's a the trouble with being with listening to God is that if we really listen to God, we need to be willing to do what God says. And Jonah wasn't. 
But more than that, we need to learn from Jonah's bad example that to do God's will, we need to learn to love God's will. There are things about God's will that we find unattractive. And uh, they are things that might involve personal discomfort. Jonah was obviously very concerned about his personal comfort. And God provided for his personal comfort with that gourd that he built up that had gave him shade. Um, but we have to recognize that there's more into what God is trying to accomplish than our personal comfort. And Jonah had trouble with that, and I think we should learn from his example. He craved personal comfort and a feeling of superiority to those he was supposed to address. And he even felt embarrassed by preaching doom and then having that punishment go, you know, uh, be delayed. In a way, you know, that's kind of what happened to the Bible students. You know, we, we, we came out at the beginning of the, Bible, of the uh, harvest saying um, in, in 40 years, there's going to be a judgment. And the judgment was way delayed. You know, it's been it's been 140 years, um, but eventually God will finish what He intends to do. You know, and and Jonah was perched on the hilltop, lo waiting for the judgment to happen, and and he wasn't in the center of God's will while he was doing that. And that's what I get from Paul. In Acts 22, tells the story of his um, conversion. And one thing that I think is very interesting there, that when the voice of God spoke to Paul, it was not intelligible to the others. And I think that's true in our cases. You know, we have things that happen in our lives where we think God is telling us to do something, and everybody else even who are in the same, going through the same experiences with us, may not, they might see something, they might hear something, but it's not intelligible to them. And I think that we need to recognize that if our brethren are convinced that they are getting something from their experience, we shouldn't try to talk them out of it. You know, uh, God speaks to each of us individually, and we need to, honor that and recognize that that uh, it may not be the same thing for every person in terms of what he wants them to do or what he expects them to accomplish. Uh, then think about some other things. Hi, Rose. Um, then think about, so we're talking about uh, Paul right now, uh, different things and ways in which God talks to us. Uh, there were a number of things in Paul's life after that that are interesting to me, too, in terms of how God spoke to him. Um, first of all, remember how he prayed again and again to have his blindness and his weepy eyes dealt with, or the thorn of the, the flesh, whatever it was, and that seems to me like that's what it was. And um, God never probably audibly answered this question, but through experience, Paul concluded that the answer was no, and he also concluded 
that what that meant was my grace is sufficient for you my strength is made perfect in weakness so what Paul needed to learn even the mighty Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament he needed to learn that God was not doing this through Paul God was was taking a weak human being and he was he was making his grace perfect through that human being he was showing his own power his own ability to 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 work with flawed people like we talked about in the case of those two prophets in in um, in the book of first kings another thing is that think about the time when paul um he writes that he he had a an open door but he couldn't go through it because of of trouble that he was having a feeling of alienation and loneliness that he had because he didn't have his co-workers with him so i think that even though god spoke to paul through an opportunity and through an open door god understood when paul didn't have the emotional strength to carry on and to enter the open door and there's no evidence that god punished paul or was mad at paul for that then paul tells the story of how when he later at a different time when there was he he says without were um fightings and within were tears when he was when he was really struggling uh and with had all kinds of hostile surroundings and there was not a, a visible open door of opportunity yet god comforted him with by the sending of titus he said and then together when he had titus with him and he had a, a companion when he had a friend that he could work with then they were able to go out and do some really useful things and i think god honors that too you know god recognizes that we need to have friends and companions to do things and um so i that's another thing that i appreciate in paul's experience there's also the story of paul and barnabas how they they had a an, a bad experience with mark john mark who kind of lost heart right in the middle of a pivotal um missionary trip and bolted and paul could not forgive that and barnabas could Barnabas thought that Mark had learned his lesson and would and they would be fine and Paul was refused to 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 go into the next trip with Mark. And so it ended up that they they had such a sharp disagreement of tactics that they split up and went separate ways and Barnabas did one thing and Paul did another. Well, how did God respond to that? God honored both men. he gave grace and strength to both men even though they tactically they it's not that they had a division this is not a split but they they tactically got involved in different ministries and in different avenues of service and God honored both avenues I really appreciated uh last week in Tim's talk he talked about Zechariah and he pointed out something that I'd never seen before in Luke 1 he 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 pointed out that that when um 
when the angel of God, Gabriel, came to Zacharias, he said, uh, you know, this is going to happen and so forth. And, and Zacharias asked kind of the same question Abraham asked. How is this going to happen? I'm an old man. <laughs> and Gabriel kind of got stiff about it and said, listen, I'm Gabriel. I, I, I stand before God. And because you questioned me on this, you're not going to be able to speak for nine months until this baby is born. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really interesting, especially since, as Tim pointed out, Mary asked a similar kind of question. How, how can this happen? How can I have a baby? I've never known a man. And she, he didn't rebuke Mary. So I was thinking about, well, how does... How does God view the dialogues that we have with him? And to me, the lesson I got from that was there are times when God expects us, because of our maturity and our, the experience we've already had with him, there are times when he just expects us to catch a hint or a glance and just get right into what it is that he's, he's saying and do it faithfully and obediently. He expects that of us, like we expect more from our teenagers than we do from our five-year-olds. Mary was a different case. She was a younger person and, and tender in years, probably 13, 14 years old, and she was had no experience with God, and so Gabriel was, he, he took the time to explain things to her, and he, he didn't expect her to just immediately accept what they were saying. So I think that shows a difference in how God works with us. Now I want to just mention um, two or three other little things. Um, Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings 19. What I notice about Elijah in the way God talked to him and when he was listening to God, God asked him to focus on what he was doing. And it was it reminded me of the times when Jesus would sometimes ask questions to people and they wouldn't answer those questions. Like, remember the one in John where where um, he said to the man who was waiting for the water to be moved, the the, the man who had, who had been lame, and he, he said, do you want to be healed? And, and, and the, the guy completely ignored that and he said, nobody lets me come and they, they push me away and I can't get to the, you know, and he said, and he just said, you know, his question was, do you want to be healed? That was his question. And the guy didn't answer that question. Well, that's the way he was with Elijah. God said to Elijah, um, what are you doing? And what did Elijah say? He didn't say, well, I'm doing this and frankly, I'm just sitting here in the cave cowering in fear. He didn't say that at all. He, he, he said, well, Jezebel is out to get me, and I've been very faithful. So he was focused on his own faithfulness, and he was focused on what his enemies were wanting to do to him, and God just didn't, didn't ask him that. God said, what are you doing? And he asked him that three times, and finally he said, look, I've got 7,000 people who, you know, who are on your side out there. You know, and uh, so he said, "Here's what I want you to do." And he gave him three things to do. And so then Elijah finished his life, 
setting out at least to do what God wanted him to do. I, I, there's not much evidence that he really accomplished much of what God asked him to do at the end, but he, he at least was on his way. And that's sometimes, I think, what God does with us when he talks to us. And then there was the, the story of uh, Nathan and David. When David sinned uh, with Bathsheba and Nathan was sent, here's a case where God spoke to a man who usually he was able to speak directly to. He needed to speak to him through another person. And that person needed to find a creative way to, to get the truth to him. Because, you know, all, the, all the, the front doors to his heart were blocked by his hardness of heart and, and his, his arrogance and pride. And so God had to send a prophet who was willing and able to, to, to talk to the king in a way that he could hear. And he did it by, you know, telling the story about some poor victim somewhere. And then he said, okay, that's, that's the story you're living right now. You're the victimizer. Well, I think God does that with us. He, he speaks to us through our friends or our enemies or our circumstances to get us to uh, rethink something that we've done that he's unhappy with. Then there's one more story from David's life I want to mention in terms of how God talks to us, and that's the story of Shimei. He was the guy who was a, a relative of of Saul and uh, when David was fleeing Absalom and was kind of had his little government in exile and they were running away from Absalom and they had a little army with him um, this guy started throwing rocks you know and this account is in 2nd Samuel 16 the Nathan story by the way is in 2nd Samuel 12 this is 2nd Samuel 16 verses 5 through 14 and it's a story where um, he curses David and says, you know, calls him a bloody man. The same words, actually, that, that Zipporah, Moses' wife, said to him. That's uh, interesting. I don't know if there's any connection. But anyway, he called him a bloody man and, he, and uh, threw rocks and dust down on him from the hill above. And, of course, uh, Abishai, his uh, general, said, I'd like to cut his head off. <laughs> And David said, he said this, um, uh, Let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Um, and he said, Look, look at my son who came out of my loins. He is seeking my life. How much more now can this Benjamite? I mean, if my own son is 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 trying to kill me, what, what you know? Why should I not listen to this guy who who lost everything when his when his relative when his you know tribe was deposed as the king? So so I what I get from that is that uh, David, after he'd been humbled a little bit in his life was able to, to, to listen to what anybody would say 
no matter how harsh or malevolent they were, he was able to take whatever came to him, not as from that person, but from God. All right, now, for the last 15 minutes, what I want to do is is reflect on some of experiences in my own life, Beth and my life, um, that, that feel like God talking um, to us and talking to me. Uh, the first time I really felt like God was talking to me was a, an occurrence back when I was a teenager. And I was, um, I had just gone through the, the death of my best friend, David Gregorick. And you probably know that story. And um, after that happened, I really got serious about studying the Bible. And I was already engaged in a, pro a project called In the Know. It's a, it was a uh, TV show. I don't know if they still have it. And uh, I was on a team, and you know, we thought we were pretty good. We hadn't won any games on TV yet, but we thought we were maybe had a chance. And uh, we were getting ready for the first In the Know match that fall. And I, I went to my dad that summer, and I said, I don't know what to do because I feel like if I really give it my best shot, that God is, uh, or not, not, I didn't bring God to it. I said, if, I'm, if I give it my best shot, I feel like our team can go places, and I, but I don't have my heart in it anymore. I, I, I want to spend more of my free time studying the Bible. And he said, well, just tell God that. You know, just ask God for a solution. So that's what I did. I prayed to God. I said, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. So we came to the first mat. I, I continued meeting and studying like crazy for in the know and just hardly had any time for Bible study. And uh, we came to the first match. And um, at the end of the match, we, we just lost by a whisker. And out of, uh, out of 160 points... Uh, that we had, uh, I think I had 130 of them. You know, it was like the other guys on the team weren't weren't answering any questions, and so I wasn't terribly disappointed. I was kind of glad we lost. You know, even though everybody was heartbroken in my team, and and I said, "What happened to you guys?" And they said, "I don't know." I said, "Was your buzzer broken?" You know, and they said, "No, it's just that they didn't ask any questions that I knew." And, you know, God spoke to me through that. That, that experience was God... I, I took that from that, that what God was telling me was, listen, I know what is in your brain, and I, what, I know what's in your, your um, teammate's brain, and I supervised the selection of questions so that you felt good about the effort you made. You carried your team, and yet you lost. Because I didn't... I supervised it so that, you know, those guys didn't, weren't asked any questions that they knew. And um, that it wasn't long after that that I gave my heart to the Lord, you know, a couple months later. So I, to me, that, that was a huge experience in my life. It seems trivial today, but this is an example of how God is willing to work with each of us and, and, and talk to us through the little circumstances of our lives. Um, a few years later, after, uh, of course, God spoke to me by... Um, uh, one time in, when I was in Colorado, I walked into a room and a shaft of light came down. And there was this beautiful young lady there, sitting there. 
and that was bad. That the God spoke to me through that. <laughs> anyway, but after we were married, uh, we were wrestling with a, a big decision in our lives uh, about how to prioritize our time. And at that time, back in the early 70s, there was a very strong uh, presentation that was going around the country with the idea that, that if you really want to be faithful to God, you should not have children. And that was a big discussion among young married people. And uh, and so I thought about it and prayed about it and read all the scriptures about sacrifice and everything. And I made a decision um, that I thought that God would not want us to have kids, you know. And uh, so then I had to sit back and oftentimes when God talks to us, he doesn't talk to us before we make our decisions. He talks to us, I think, after we make our decisions. There's even a scripture that says that. You'll hear a voice behind you that says, talking about that. And, and the, the voice that I heard behind me after that was the voice, um, first of all, of um, you, you know, seeing the pain that my wife was going through, trying to make that idea stick. It just didn't fit. It didn't. It went against her being and against her sensibilities. But I also heard and saw the fact that when I looked at people who had kids, I liked the way they were more than I liked the way I, what I saw exemplified in people who didn't have kids. I felt like kids did something for people that must be good for them. And, and I also started discovering a lot of scriptures that, that talk about being saved through childbearing and, 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 and how children are a, a blessing from God and happy is the man who has his quiver full of them and so forth. Um, so I did, decided that I had made a mistake and I, I changed my mind on it. And I, it, having our kids was the best thing that ever happened to me, spiritually speaking. And I feel that God spoke to me and Beth through our emotions and through um, uh, our observation and through his word to get us to go against what was kind of the, the um, prevailing fad at the time. And I think it was kind of a fad. And, uh, and um, when I, what, what, the reason I say that is because I don't see that the Lord blessed it. I, and I know a number of families who actually... Um, took surgical steps to prevent having kids who later had had that surgery reversed and um, and were happy that they did and God bless them. So I think that we weren't alone in going through that struggle. Um, there's been a lot of experiences that we've had. Uh, we don't have time to go through them all, but you know, um, one thing that the Lord spoke to me through personally was through the uh, efforts that we had when we did the pyramid show. That was similar to For This Cause in that it was a group of people who worked together hard to do something in the Lord's service, and it had some success. 4,300 people came to the showing at uh, Fawcett Center. 20-some hundred came to the showing uh, at a theater in Toledo. Um, what I got out of that experience, though, what, what I felt like at the, when it was all said and done, what I felt God was saying to me through that experience 
was that it's more important to have fruit for, rela for relationships and to be people of character than it is to accomplish work. I didn't feel bad about the work we accomplished, but I felt from having done that and how, how burned out everybody got through the process that there were really serious things within me that I needed to focus on in order to try to be use, more useful to God and more able to work with people. And I really kind of told God that, that I felt like he didn't need a creative person. He needed a person who knew how to work with people. And I, um, I think that the years that followed with my business and uh, struggles in the ecclesia, um, we're all God's collect collectively became God's answer to that prayer way back in 1980. That you know, He said, "Okay, you want to work with people? I have some things for you to go through." And that's uh, that's what happened in my business. You know, in my business, the first three four years of my business, it was like God. Um, encouraged me like crazy. I had all sorts of experiences that gave me confidence because I did not have confidence at the beginning. I was very insecure and very doubtful of my abilities and everything. And God gave me one amazing experience after another in my business that gave me gave me confidence. Uh, all sorts of awards, all sorts of people calling from all over the place to ask me to do work for them. and Amazing things happened. And then once he had built my confidence up, then he pulled the rug out from under me and gave me a lot of experience with my weaknesses and my failings. And I ended up that all that I worked for got burned up with my first business when it failed in 1990. And then um, it took us a number of years of struggling and paying off debts uh, and going through some bouts with depression before I finally... Um, came to a point in my heart where I could accept full responsibility for all of those uh, mistakes and failures that caused that. And um, it, things have uh, been much better uh, since the time in 1992 when I f took full responsibility. Well, I need to wind up here. Um, what are the barriers to hearing the voice of God in our lives? Well, certainly distractions that we allow to come in, uh, the pace of life, cares of this life, those can be barriers. Uh, when Balaam uh, finally saw what God wanted, he, he, he stopped paying attention to the other people. He turned his face to the wilderness, it said. And I think we need to turn our face to the wilderness when we want to get and hear God's voice in our lives. Inexperience, when we're young, like Samuel, it can be a barrier to hearing the voice of the Lord. Selfishness, like Balaam, can be a, a, a thing that can hinder us from hearing the voice of the Lord speaking to us through his word or his people. Um, sometimes the hostility of the people who are trying to speak to us, like with Shimei, can be a hindrance. And we need to learn to accept God speaking to us through those who are hostile to us. Um, um, but I think that probably the biggest reason that we fail to 
and are dull of hearing with respect to the voice of God is what Moses exemplified. And that was uh, simple self-doubt, inability to believe that God really does love us and want to work with us, and that he really can give us the strength to do what he wants us to do. Um, I want to close with a a little excerpt from a prayer that was um, given by uh, a Serbian bishop. And um, it kind of goes with the story of the of the uh, two prophets from First Kings 13, you know, where you had a, a prophet who loved and appreciated the prophet of Judah, basically, in the story, said something that wasn't true, that stumbled him. And he didn't test it, and he didn't, you know, uh, get the victory. And yet they were buried together in, in their grave at the end. So they, they were together in death. But this, story, this uh, prayer was written by this Serbian bishop. His name is Nikolai Velomirovich. And um, he was um, an Eastern uh, Orthodox bishop during the Nazi Holocaust. And um, one day in the, in the monastery, talking to his brothers, his other priests, he said some things against the Nazis. But he was only talking to his brothers. Not too long later, the Nazis came and rounded him up and took him to a prison camp. So he knew that one of his buddies betrayed him. So he writes this prayer after he got past the anger and the feeling of betrayal. And I, I, I believe that it helps us see how we need to view even those that we're associated with who seem to be hostile toward us, could even be our own brethren. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. Enemies have driven me into your embrace, more than friends have. Friends have bound me to earth. Enemies have loosed me from earth and have demolished all my aspirations in this world. Just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter than an unhunted animal does, so have I, persecuted by enemies, found the safest sanctuary beneath your tabernacle, where neither friends nor enemies can slay my soul. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless and do not curse them. They, rather than I, have confessed my sins. They have punished me whenever I have hesitated to punish myself. They have tormented me whenever I have tried to flee torments. They have scolded me whenever I have flattered myself. Whenever I have made myself wise, they have called me foolish. Whenever I have made myself mighty, they have mocked me. Whenever I have wanted to lead people, they have shoved me into the background. Whenever I have rushed to enrich myself, they have prevented me with an iron hand. 
Whenever I have tried to build a home for a long and tranquil life, they have demolished it and driven me out. Enemies have taught me how to know what hardly anyone knows, that a person has no enemies in the world except himself. One hates his enemies only when he fails to realize that they are not enemies, but cruel friends. It is truly difficult for me to say who has done me more good and who has done me more evil in the world, friends or enemies. Therefore, bless, O Lord, both my friends and my enemies. A slave curses enemies, for he does not understand, but a son blesses them, for he understands that his enemies cannot touch his life. Therefore, he freely steps among them and prays to God for them. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. Well, we'll stop there. Um, we have a break now, and uh, then afterwards we can have a discussion or a um, testimony meeting, whatever you want to do for the last hour. So why don't we um, why don't we dismiss with prayer? Um, you want to pray, Mom? Our loving Father, we thank thee for thy many blessings, thy many blessings on our behalf. We thank thee for the words of wisdom that we have just heard, and um, help us to appreciate and apply these principles also in our own lives. We would ask thy blessing upon those who are in convention and are not here with us this day. And we would ask thy blessing upon us in our fellowship uh, break and uh, the testimony meeting to follow. Be with thy, all of our brethren and all their experiences. We thank thee for blessing us here this day. In Jesus' name and through his merit we pray. Amen. Hmm. That was a sweet moment from my life. Um, it must have been about uh, 2002 and my father had just died, I believe. It was probably in the fall of the year that my father died in 2002. And uh, my mom passed away in 2018, uh, about four years ago. But she was a sweet, good example as a Christian. And um, uh, you can hear in her prayer the, the gentle spirit and the deep devotion that she carried in her life and that was an example that I benefited from, probably not as much as I should have. All of us have trouble getting the full benefit of those closest to us, but I was greatly appreciative of the example she set and the example that my father set in my life, and it, it was a neat experience to uh, rediscover this recording recently and, and find that little treasure of my mom's prayer that day. 
At any rate, you've been listening to the seventh episode of Good Words, and uh, in the next episode, we'll continue with this exploration of strength, weakness, listening to the voice of God, learning the lessons that we have in life that come from the fact that we're left so free to think and to choose and to decide and to experience whatever it is that the gentle leadings of God bring our way as Christians. Thanks for listening.